How's everybody doing this morning? All right, right. Um, sorry to open up on, on something so heavy. I'm sure most all of you, if not all of you, are familiar with um, what happened this week uh, on Memorial Day. We had, there's a couple that's been coming to church here for about, about three and a half years. Um, it was a, a, I don't know how else to say it, 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 it a murder-suicide, and um, it's been a rough week, and uh, that family was related to uh, Corey Drake that used to work here, and, and Amy, who leads a group here, and and, um, and so uh, needless to say, it's been a really, really tough week. I've been through a lot, and when I say I've been through a lot, I don't mean that like me. I've, I've seen a lot in the last nine and a half years we've been doing this church, and uh, never been a part of anything like that. It's... Uh, it's been extremely tragic, extremely hard to deal with. I'm bringing this up, A, because I just feel like we need to talk about it, uh, and then B, I want to ask you to pray. I don't, I don't think there's any financial need. I've had a lot of people reach out, you know, is there anything that uh, they left a five-year-old girl, and so there's a, a five-year-old girl named Piper who lost her mom, dad, grandpa, and grandma in one day, and, um, and people have asked if there's a financial need. I don't believe there is. Uh, I've talked to the family many, many times. I, I think all that's taken care of. Um, I think the biggest need, quite frankly, is there needs to be a community who is is really avidly praying for them and praying for this little girl, and not just for a month or for a little bit, but but that needs to be someone. This little girl's going to face mountains that probably none of us in this room can understand, and um, we need to pray for this kid uh, for years to come. And um, I know some people disagree with this, but I believe it takes a village to raise a child, and um, we are the village, and she is the child, and uh, she comes to this church. And uh, this is just something that we need to make sure that we are, are very, very intentionally praying for this family. So that's what I ask of you. Uh, the funeral is, is today. I have to leave right after this, and I have to, to go out to Franklin and, and do that funeral. And um, So just please pray for that family. Pray for the Drakes. Pray for everyone involved. And uh, very, very tough time. Um, Moving forward, uh, it's funny. I said last night. I, sometimes you just need the word. I get, you know, we always need the word, right? But there are sometimes when you just need the word. And it was strange last night after after saying that at the five for the first time, and I kind of got emotional. It just hit me though. I'm so I'm so blessed that we get to hear the word and that there is such strength in it and such security in it. And um, so we need to hear the word. Um, if it's your first time here, if you're new, you've only been coming for a little bit. We've been in the Book of Acts for gazillion years now or something. I don't know. We've been in it for a long time. We're getting close to the end. We've got about three more chapters to go, 26, 27, 28, and uh, all of you will be scholars in the book of Acts if you've been coming to this church for any length of time. Um, last week, we were in chapter 25, and chapter 25 is pretty straightforward. We've been following this, this kind of saga of Paul for several, gosh, I guess for a couple of months now. We've just been following around Paul We've, we've now seen him go through multiple trials. He's spoken in front of multiple officials, and we find him in chapter 25. There is kind of this, um, it's not even a legit trial. It's this kind of makeshift trial in front of all the dignitaries and the king of the Jews, and all these people are there, and they kind of parade Paul out, and he's in chains, and it's for all these kind of who's who of the community to look at this famous prisoner and to hear his story. Now, in chapter 26, we're going to hear that story again. We've heard it several times. We're going to hear it again from Paul's mouth. He's going to give his defense, if you will, okay? And what we're going to talk about today, and this will make sense towards the end, we're going to talk about, there's kind of this plot twist right towards the end of chapter 26, and it's going to bring up freedom. 
Could Paul have gone free? And so we're going to talk about this today. We have a very skewed, very twisted perception of what freedom is. So today we're going to ask ourselves the question, we're going to look at some things and ask, what is freedom? What does it mean to be free, right? We consider ourselves a free people, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to carry a gun, all these freedoms. What does it mean to truly be free? Okay. So you should have received a notes handout when you came in. If you didn't, uh, the Experience Community app, it's free. And uh, if you download that, click on service time and sermon notes. Everything is on there and everything's good. So how's everyone doing with the heat recently? It's been really bad, hasn't it? This is totally off topic. Every year I pressure wash my driveway and I'm like, I should seal this so I don't have to do this every year. But I never do. So I go back and pressure wash it again, which I know you guys could care less about, but it's hot outside. And so I, I pressure wash and then periodically just kind of, well, not that close, right? Peel the skin off my face. But uh, I hate pressure washing and it's become a yearly thing for me. So uh, anyways, again, nothing to do with what we're talking about. So let's pray. Let's dive into the word and um, see where the Lord takes us, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we just want to thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this sanctuary, God. Thank you, Lord, that this can be a place where we can come in and we can find some peace, and we can find some comfort, and Lord, that your word can direct us and guide us and give us hope and some answers, Lord. Father, we thank you for all the great churches in our city. We thank you, God, for the great nonprofits in our city. Lord, we thank you, God, that we have the freedoms that we do and the ability to come in here, God, and, and to share and to be this community that we are. Father, we want to say an extra special prayer, God, for Cassidy's family this morning. I want to pray for her mom, Shirley, I want to pray, God, for her, her daughter, Piper. I want to pray, Father, Lord, because you are the Prince of Peace, that you give everyone involved, Lord, a peace that passes all understanding, God. Lord, you are our hope, Father. We believe what your word says, God, that if we believe in you, that we will never die, God, but have everlasting life. We love you. We thank you, God. We hope that we honor you well today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's get into chapter 26, all right? So King Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you're very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God has promised to our ancestors, the promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him day and night. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, this would have been a while ago, right? Several chapters ago. In Acts chapter 9, this is when Paul becomes a Christian. God spoke to a man named Ananias to go find Paul because God was making a promise to Paul that he would speak to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Jews, and that he would also speak in front of kings. 
Now he's standing in front of a king, giving his testimony in preparation to going to the emperor, the leader of the whole world at the time, in the future. So that promise is coming to fulfillment. Now this was decades after he had become a Christian. I don't know about you guys, but there have been times in my life when God said, hey, I'm going to do something for you. Years go by, long expanses of times go by, and I'm like, hey, God, you made this promise, right? What's going on? Here's the thing about our time and God's understanding of time. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord doesn't delay in his promises like we understand delay. Whenever we get frustrated, God, you're supposed to do this right now. God says, hey, I know time better than you do, and I will do it in my time, right? And that's hard for us, but we need to understand that God knows what's best in his timing. So for the first time probably since we've been studying Paul, Paul has an audience that doesn't interrupt him. (laughs) So he's standing in this tribunal, this essentially like a courtroom, right, this big thing. He's standing there. There's no angry mobs. No one wants to kill him in the room. No one wants to interrupt him. No one wants to stone him or anything. And he can share his story with the king, with the Roman governor Festus in the room, with all the dignitaries. And so he tells about his experience, and he tells about the history of the prophets that led to Jesus. Now, apologetics is what this is called. Apologetics is not apologizing for your faith. I'm so sorry I'm a Christian. That's not what apologetics is. Apologetics is accurately defending and explaining your faith. So Paul is the first Christian apologist, right? Explaining the faith the way he did. Paul also shows the audience a tremendous amount of respect. He's always done this with all of his audiences. He also shows a genuine appreciation for having the opportunity to speak. When he says, I'm so thankful that I'm here, he means it. He's thankful that he has this opportunity. Now, this trial is going to be unique to all the other trials for a lot of reasons, but here's the big one. All the accusations of rioting, all the accusations of political rebellion and sedition have been dismissed at this point. They're they're irrelevant at this point. Paul's going to go see Caesar. Not only that, all of the the so-called witnesses of him defiling the temple, there were no witnesses. So all of that, all that ship has sailed. The only topic left to deal with is Paul's faith and how his faith connects to the Jewish Old Testament. That's what they're going to talk about. Jesus is essentially the topic of debate at this point. So Paul begins his defense with his reputation. He says, you guys have known my reputation. Not only was I a Pharisee, I was kind of like the Pharisee of Pharisees. I believed in all the Pharisaical laws and doctrines. And he says, the main doctrine of the Pharisees that I believed in was the resurrection. This idea that one day a savior would come, resurrect from the grave, and then we would be resurrected because of that. Now, before I get to that, This topic of Paul's reputation is important. It is easier for you and I to share Jesus Christ with people when we are reputable and trustworthy. If we're the person at the office that always loses their cool and like starts beating the copier or cussing like crazy or gossiping about everyone, I really hope that's not you, by the way. Anyways, if we are that person all the time and everyone knows this is the one that flies off the handle and tells dirty jokes and like all this kind of stuff, when our faith comes up, no one's going to want to hear about it because obviously your faith hasn't done anything for you. So we need to make sure we are reputable and make sure that we are trustworthy 
and then we share the gospel with people. So Paul wanted to focus on the Pharisees' belief of the resurrection. That's where he wanted to hang his hat for a little bit. Because essentially, when you read the Old Testament, the entire theme of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is like an arrow that points to this one fact, that a Messiah will come, he will resurrect, and one day we will be resurrected in order to be with him. So what Paul was doing is he was connecting the dots. He said, Herod, you're a scholar, right? If anyone knows the Old Testament, Herod, it is you. And if you go back and read the Old Testament in light of what I'm telling you about Jesus, you should be able to see that everything we've studied has led to Jesus Christ. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. So he goes on with his testimony, okay? Paul says, in fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them, and I tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I even pursued them to foreign cities. So Paul's saying, guys, if anyone was an adversary to the Christians, it was me. Paul was essentially a hitman for the Pharisees. And here's what's interesting is everyone is in the room listening to Paul. I mean, like they're really, really interested in what he's saying. Paul looks at King Herod Agrippa II, that's who he's talking to, and he says, it was your dad that appointed me to be a hitman. Look at this. If you're reading this like a, like a novel or if it was like a movie scene, this man said, hey, your dad appointed me to kill Christians. Now I am a Christian. And everyone in the room was probably shocked by this. And they were like, oh my gosh, look at, look at how this has shifted and turned. And so here's the thing. Forcing people to convert religions and forcing people to recant religions with cruelty, with death or with the fear of death has been going on since religion has existed. This has happened in virtually every religion, and people do it in the name of God. I don't know if you guys remember the whole Coney thing that happened a couple of years ago in Eastern Africa. He's doing all that in the name of Jesus. I don't know if you knew that or not. Slaughtering villages in the name of Jesus Christ. This has happened with the Inquisitions. This has happened with the Crusades. And that's not God, though. That's not representative of God's Word. That's a bunch of sinful, fallen humans that are doing evil things. And that brings us to this point. One cannot judge a religion based on the followers of that religion. You can't, right? You can't judge Jesus based on me. You have to judge Jesus based on his word, not just mine. It's the same thing not only with Christianity, but with Islam. We don't judge Islam based on Islamic people. Now, I know you guys are probably thinking about extremists. I'm not. I have lots of Muslim friends who are wonderful people, nice people, kind people, hardworking people, good citizens, great people. But that does not mean that Islam is okay because these people are nice. When you get into the Quran, the Quran says that women are worth half as much as men and are property that can be beaten and abused. I'm not okay with that. So I see that and I say, I judge this religion not off my Muslim friends, but on the holy text. Don't judge Christianity based on the Christian's mistakes. Judge it based on the word of God. That's how we judge our faith. 
So it isn't just crusades, though, or inquisitions that have pushed people away from Christianity, which I find to be a laughable argument in the first place. People are like, well, look at all the horrible things Christians have done. I'm like, oh, okay, tell me about it. Well, the crusades, the inquisitions, and I'm like, tell me something in the last thousand years. How about that, right? So anyways, that's usually not why people turn from Christianity. People usually turn from Christianity because of the small and insensitive things that Christians do on a daily basis, like gossip and be judgmental and be mean-spirited and be arrogant. And if we do that in the name of Jesus or carrying around the title of Christian, people aren't gonna wanna have what we have to offer. Here's the thing though, guys. You don't have to be perfect. We're not gonna be perfect. God doesn't expect you to be perfect. We're not to be perfect. The Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible says that we are to be kind and that we are to be humble. And when we make mistakes, which you will, we're to be quick to say, please forgive me. How can I make this situation right? How are we to do the right thing? How can I make this up to you? Please forgive me for this. We will eventually become perfect as he is perfect, as the Bible says, but that's when he comes back and solidifies our eternity with him, okay? So Paul mentions that he had tried to make the Christians blaspheme, which means he basically tried to get them to say something bad about Jesus. When it says that he tried to do this, it gives us the, the illusion that he wasn't very successful. And so he tried to make these Christians recant their faith. He tried to punish them, threaten them, do these things, but it didn't work. And so when I read that, and I read that these Christians were threatened with going to jail, being killed, their family members being killed, and they did not recant, I have to ask myself, if I were threatened with those things, would I still hold on to my faith? Nowadays, guys, if God doesn't like drop money out of the sky or give us everything we want, we turn our back on Jesus. What if we were actually threatened to be killed or imprisoned? Would we hold on to our faith? It's a good question to ask ourselves periodically, okay? It goes on with the story. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share of those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, again, if you've been with us through Acts, you've heard Paul's testimony, I think this is the third or fourth time now. Now, one of the reasons why we hear the story of Paul's conversion multiple times is because there are different audiences every time it's being told. Now, when there are different kinds of cultures and people, we have to share the gospel in a different way. We don't add to it or take away from it or anything like that, but there are certain parts that we emphasize or don't emphasize. The fancy way of saying this is it's called contextualization of the gospel. Here's all this means. 
If you're sharing the gospel in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, there's a certain way we kind of have to go about it. You don't just walk up to someone in Starbucks and like hit them on the back of the head and be like, hey, do you know who Jesus is? Like they kind of think you're a weirdo, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I do. Yeah, I don't know. You're kind of weird, right? You have to kind of build a relationship with people first and then say, you know, hey, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Now, if you go to Uganda with me, I hope you get to one day, when you go to Uganda, it's completely different culture. You can literally walk up to someone and say, hey, knock on their door, right? Or if they don't have a door, just walk up, right? Hey, do you know Jesus? And they're like, no, tell me about him. And then you're kind of caught off guard. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Hey, this is Jesus, right? And you share it. Completely different culture. And what we have to learn to do is we have to look at different cultures and figure out the best way to put the, the, the gospel in context to their culture and their kind of people. And Paul was a master at this. We saw him do it with the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, all kinds of different people. And in this version of Paul's story, we get a new kind of nugget in there. Paul says that Jesus said to him that he was kicking against the goads. Now, I'm kind of a Yankee and didn't know what a goad was, so I had to look this up, and it's essentially a cattle prod, right? And so what Jesus was telling Paul is he's like, you're trying to push against this, but I'm going to poke you to get you to go in the right direction. And this is what Jesus was telling Paul. I'm about to interrupt your path. I'm about to make you walk a different path. Now, this is essentially what converting to Christianity is. You're not going to get literally poked, right? But being being a Christian is an interruption from God. It's a chance for God to align us to his will. Becoming a Christian is a wake up call. It's a voice. It's a light that shines on the path that shows us where to go. It's God pushing us and prodding us to get us to walk in a direction that will lead us to contentment and joy and to fulfillment. And sometimes God's, guys, that poking kind of hurts, right? Sometimes God smacks us around sometimes, but it's not because he doesn't love us. He knows that if we keep walking this direction, we're going to get hurt. So he pokes us and he directs us in the way that he wants us to go. That's what he was doing with Paul. So Paul also said that Jesus told him that you're going to be delivered from your people so you can go back to your people and go back to the Gentiles, lead them from the light to the darkness, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Now, Paul kind of sounds like an Old Testament prophet who stood in front of nations and said, we're going the wrong way. Let's go this way, right? And what we see here is this, though. This is very important for you. The job of the Old Testament prophets and the job of the New Testament Christians, that's you and I, most of us in this room, is essentially the same thing. That we are to share the gospel, and the gospel is to have three components to it. One is we have to convert. I I, I don't really like that word a lot, but what that means is we have to accept that Jesus is our only hope. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He's the one that knows the path that we should go. We must convert. We must also ask for forgiveness. We must repent. This isn't just saying we're sorry for what we've done. This is changing our direction and walking a different way. Then the last thing that we must tell people is that we must be sanctified. That's a very churchy word. All that means, though, is that the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we start to look like Jesus. And we're set apart for Jesus to use us. 
We start speaking more like him and thinking more like him and loving more like him. And the more we look like him, the more he uses us to do things that he wants done on earth. We're sanctified. And one day we receive heaven with the other sanctified believers of Jesus Christ. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea, that's South Israel, and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have had help from God and I stand and testify to both small and great saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, I like what he said here, and I'm going to hang on this slide for a second. Paul said, I wasn't disobedient. Paul said that I went to the Jews first, and then I went to the Gentiles, and my message was this, repent and turn to God, and do works worthy of repentance. Now, we're going to be super clear here, and I'll get a lot of amens on the front and maybe not as many on the back end of this statement, but we're going to go there, right? So the first thing is this. We are not saved by anything good that we can do. There is nothing we can do to earn salvation. We are saved by grace, through faith, and that's it. There is no amount of good deeds that you and I can do to earn the opportunity to be with God forever. Nothing we can do. Now, on the flip side of that, if we have been saved by grace through faith, our life should reflect that. We should live in such a manner that shows that God has touched our heart. If the Holy Spirit lives in here, the things that come out of me should reflect the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have a problem with these statements, you can take it up with James, the brother of Jesus, or with Jesus when we get to heaven. But Jesus said this, a tree will be known by its fruit. You can walk along all day long and say, I am a Christian tree, right? I produce Christian fruit. But if we look at the fruit of the Spirit in the Bible and none of those things are displayed in your life, we can say we're an apple tree all day long, but if oranges are the only thing on our branches, we are not apple trees. So when people say to me, I'm a Christian, I cheat on my wife, I'm addicted to porn, I periodically kick animals and cheat on my taxes and lie to everyone, but I'm a Christian who's given their life to Christ. Bull crap, there is a disconnection there. Something is wrong. Now listen, I know some of you that messes with your like old school theology that is not biblical, that says we can pray one prayer and be okay, and that is not in that book. And it has created a theology that is dangerous. That people say we can pray one prayer and live like hell for the rest of our life. People get hurt when you do that. People go to hell when you do that. And that is the truth of it. We must live a life that exemplifies the truth that should be in us. And again, if you have a problem with that, it's not me. It's Jesus that said this. It's James that said, you can tell me you have faith. I will show you my faith by my works. That's what James, the brother of Jesus, said. That's just Bible, guys. So if you have an email to send, I don't know if God has one of those, send it up his way because I'm not the one that came up with it. 
So God had been helped every step of the way. Man, I'm sorry. It's been a long week, right? Anyways, God had helped Paul every single step of the way. During the beatings, the time in jail, the false accusations, God was there to make sure Paul got exactly where he needed to be. Look at what Paul says there. A guy who had been beaten, bloodied, arrested. At the moment, he was in chains. And he says, man, God has helped me every step of the way. God had a message for Paul to deliver that transcended any one person, any one culture. And the message was the Messiah would suffer, the Messiah would rise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light. That was his message. So what happens in verse 23 is there is a shift. There's kind of this shift of this Old Testament Jewish culture that shifts into this New Testament simple gospel. And so the message came in a new way that had never been delivered before. And the message was simply this, believe in Jesus Christ, believe in the resurrection, and you will be saved. You will get to where we need to go. You will be with God the Father. So as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you are out of your mind, Paul. Study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him, for I am convinced that none of these things have escaped his notice, since it was done, not in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian? so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. The king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with him got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other, and they said, listen to this, this man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa, the king, said to Festus, the governor, this man could have been released if he just didn't appeal to Caesar. There's that twist. We'll get to that here in a second. So Festus was probably the only Roman in the room, and he had, like, reached his cap. He's listening to all these people, watching all these people, listening to this guy talk about this book, the Old Testament, right, that led to a guy named Jesus who died and rose again who's going to save everybody. It was too much for him to grasp. And he looks at Paul and he's like, Paul, you've gone crazy. You've been studying that stuff way too much and you're seeing things. You're imagining things. You've gone off the deep end. Now, what's interesting about that accusation is Paul might have been the most level-headed person in the room. He was sitting there and he says, I'm not irrational. I'm not crazy. He goes, I speak with truth. I speak with good judgment, with a level head. Now, what we learn from that, again, is that if we in Christ, as Christians will just be normal people. And I know, that the, I know what the Bible says. We're a peculiar people. We're a holy people. We're a, a royal priest. I know what the Bible says about that, that, that God has made us special, if you will. I, I get that. But in our day-to-day -day life, if we will just be hardworking, honest, normal people, right? If we will just have normal conversation with, with, with people, we will have a much greater chance of connecting with them about Jesus. 
If we just live in a Christian bubble and speak Christianese, do you guys know what Christianese is? It's this language that only Christians know and non-believers don't know. If we only speak in that, we're not going to connect with people who aren't Christians. So if we walk up and, you know, someone that works like, how you doing? You're just like, man, I'm just enjoying my justification and sanctification in Christ. People are going to say, what? Right? So if we talk in normal terms, though, we will connect with them. Maybe God forbid, like, read some books that aren't Christian or watch some shows that maybe other people at work would watch. And so we can connect with them on some level and we will have a greater opportunity to build relationships with people. Oh, Corey said we need to watch something awful, right? No. (laughs) So the king was a politician and Paul was actually being a little slick at this point. Paul had spent a lot of time trying to prove that the prophets in the Old Testament solidified who Jesus was. And then he looks at this politician and goes, you believe in the prophets, right? Right? I know you do. And because King Agrippa was a politician, he answered a question with a question. And he said, did you really think you were going to persuade me so easily? Now, Paul's goal wasn't to change everyone's mind just like that. Paul's goal was to plant a seed. He put the truth out there, right? And I bet you money, some of those people in that room, they went back to their homes, they went back to their synagogues, and they probably busted open the Old Testament and started rereading it a little bit. He threw out the seed that hopefully some people would think about it, study it, research it a little bit, and hopefully some of them would accept the gospel that he had put out there. Here's probably the most gut-wrenching part of the story. Now imagine this. Paul is in the middle, and he is literally shackled and chained. He's holding chains. And so the the king says, Paul, do you really think you could convert me that easily? And in this very heartfelt answer, Paul goes, not just you, whether it's by ease or by difficulty, not just you, king, I wish I could convince everyone in this room to be like I am right now, as he's holding chains. Now, these are people that had had him beaten people that had lied about him, lied to him. This is is people that there was assassination plots against Paul multiple times. But even after his enemies tried to destroy him multiple times, Paul's desire was for them to be saved. Paul's desire was for them to have the same joy that he had as he stood there in chains. Now, here's where this twist at the end comes in. Everyone leaves the meeting And they get to talking, right? The Roman governor Festus, the king Agrippa, Bernice, his sister, girlfriend, weird thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. All these people get together and they're sitting there and they're like, this guy's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything to deserve death. He hasn't done anything to deserve prison. And then the king, King Herod Agrippa, says something fascinating. He looks at Festus and he goes, man, This dude could have been let go. He could be free right now, but he made his appeal to Caesar and now we can't let him free. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you read that and you're like, oh my gosh, did Paul make a mistake? Not to be a spoiler alert, but him going to Rome is eventually gonna cost him his life. And so we look at this and we're like, man, Paul, if you just would have been quiet, they would have let you go. You would have been able to get off the hook but you appealed to Caesar, man. And so our judgment or our take on this is completely dependent on what you and I see as being freedom. Now, here's what's interesting. Those of you who've been with me for a while studying the book of Acts, what would have happened if they would have let Paul go free? 
Someone tell me. Shout it out. He would have been killed. Thank you. Someone over here said it. If they would have let him out of the tribunal, he would have been assassinated within hours. He would have been dead. God knew that if he would have gotten outside of this, quote unquote, free, he wouldn't have lived very long at all. It's like if one of you were to walk into my house and you see a big goldfish bowl in my house, right? It's got the pretty little blue rocks in there. It's got some little like, you know, sunken treasure things in there and all these little things that make it a nice little home for this goldfish. I got plenty of food sitting there. The water is clean, beautiful big goldfish bowl for this one goldfish, right? You walk into my house and you say, Corey, you're an awful person for confining that fish to that bowl. How dare you? These parameters you've put around that fish, it can only swim so far, it can only go so many places because you have put it in this confinement. Now what's crazy about that, and I think all of you are smart enough to know this, it is true that I could let that fish go free all throughout my house, except for the fact that outside of these parameters, the fish would die. We often look at God and we say, God, why have you given us these parameters? Why have you put these things around us to lead us in a certain direction and keep, with, hold on, and keep us within a certain channel? The reason why God has given us parameters and, and instructions is because he knows outside of those parameters. Can you go there? Absolutely. But if you do, you're going to die. God says if you take your marriage and your sexuality out of these parameters, there's divorce, there's infidelity, there's hurt. There's STDs, there's unwanted pregnancies. If you go outside of these parameters, if you go outside of these parameters, these things will happen to you. There is addiction, there is captivity, there is heartbreak, there is bankruptcy, there is failure, there is eternal consequences. Do you have to stay in the confinements of the fishbowl? You do not. You are free to jump out. But there's a price for being outside of those parameters. So we have this skewed view of, of, of freedom. We talked about it last week, the sexual revolution of the 60s. Go back and study history. The sexual revolution and freedom of the 60s led us into the 1970s that had more rapes, more murders, more divorces, more serial killers, more darkness than any other decade before it. There were repercussions for taking down the parameters. We have this twisted view that if we can just do what we want to do, we will be free. We are the most depressed, we are the most lonely, we are the most anxious, we are the most addicted, we are the most broken. We have the highest divorce rates. Actually, the divorce rate has gone down because people won't even get married because they're so afraid of the commitment. Our quote unquote freedoms have led us into the most captive people we have ever been. Pursuing what we, has, what we have wanted has led us into addiction and over-medication and depravity and captivity. That's what our ways have done. And I will argue with you tooth and nail, we are not the freest we've ever been. We are the most shackled we've ever been. We're so addicted to obtaining the next thing and getting the bigger house or having the most beautiful this or whatever. And we have become slaves to our desires, slaves to our emotions, slaves to our culture. That's what we've become. We're not free. Let's go back to Paul though. Isn't it fascinating? 
While shackled in chains, Paul was the only free man in the room. (laughs) He looked around at all these free people who had the money and they had the success and they could have sex with whoever they wanted to and drink however much they wanted to and do whatever they wanted to do. And Paul says, you don't even know. I wish you could be here with me. As he held up his chains, he was the only free man, the only free person in the entire tribunal. Here's the thing. Freedom is not getting to do whatever you want to do. That is not true freedom. And I give you my word, it will only lead you to slavery and captivity. Freedom is not getting to do whatever you want to do. Freedom is being content regardless of what I want to do, regardless of my desires, because I am living in the desires and the wants of God. True freedom is being where God wants me to be. Because the parameters that this book sets for this life are only temporary. This book will come to a fulfillment and a completion when Christ comes back, makes us perfect like he is perfect, and gives us a whole new universe and earth and city to explore. We're going to have unbelievable freedom. Because freedom only comes when we follow the will of God. We have so many people who are looking for something. They're trying everything, and it has gotten bizarre in our culture. Self-mutilation and all kinds of weird sexual endeavors and all kinds of just, some things that would just, it's absolutely insane. The number one downloaded app right now in the world is Tinder, an app just to hook up with people and have casual sex. Do what you want to do. We haven't even begun to see the repercussions of crap like that yet. Just wait. If they're doing that in my children's generation, I can't imagine what my grandchildren's generation will look like. But we step back and say, if we can just have it our way. I remember when I was 19 years old, I got signed to a record label and I was leaving Murfreesboro, right? I'm gonna get out of this town. And then you go to every little town all over the United States and you find out everyone's trying to get out of there too. Because it's not that the grass is greener someone else, somewhere else. It's not that having more money is gonna solidify all, all the happiness in your life. There's a problem here. It's not that moving to another country or having sex with more people or smoking more dope is going to fulfill you. There's a disconnect here. You're created in the image of God, and when we're not living in His will, we're not living in the image that we were made in. And so there is no freedom because we're not working the way we should be working. We're not functioning in the way we should be functioning. That's why some of us feel the way we do. That's why there's this unsettledness. That's why there's a lack of joy That's why there's a lack of true contentment. That's why some of us are drowning in our hopelessness. I know it's going to make some of you mad. I've gotten to the point to where I care so much more about the truth than what people think of me. So much more. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there'll be men and women up here on both sides. If you need prayer for anything, 
Guys, and I'm not trying to offend you or make you feel weird or anything like that. If you're struggling with anxiety or fear or depression, if you're struggling with hopelessness, if you're struggling with discontent, if you have no joy in your life, come up here and let one of these men or women lay hands on you and pray with you. What can it hurt? If you're in this room and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you don't even know where to start, come up here and let one of these men or women just say, hey, I, I feel something, but I don't know what to do. Let one of these men or women pray with you or help you learn how to pray. There's also communion all the way around you. Guys, wherever you see a lamp on a table, that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That reminds us that God gave his only son, that God gave up his freedom temporarily to obtain our freedom for eternity. Everyone is welcome to take the communion. It's all the way around you. All you have to do is ask for Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Father, Lord, we've pursued happiness, we've pursued contentment, we've pursued our own desires, God, and it hasn't really left us in a good place. God, for everyone in this room, Lord, who's maybe pursued the opposite sex more than they've pursued you, maybe they've pursued money or maybe they've pursued drugs or partying, God. Lord, if there's people in this room who haven't felt like haven't felt like they've been free. Maybe they're captive to their thoughts. Maybe they're captive to their mistakes. God, I pray, Lord, that you start to deliver. I pray, Lord God, that people in this room will start to experience real freedom, real hope, real contentment. I pray, God, that we can trust you, Lord, that we know that our freedom and our happiness doesn't come from moving or doesn't come from a car we drive or a person we, we sleep with that our contentment and our identity and our hope is in you. Lord, bless my brothers and sisters, God. Bless me, Lord, God. We need you so much, Lord. We thank you and we lift you up and we praise you, God. It's in your name that we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself to prayer and communion.